Please turn me with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we'll read the first eight verses. And then after that, we will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Firstly, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we turn also to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is headed up, the mystery of godliness. Starting in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, so that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillow and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This afternoon we'll be looking at uh, Lord's Day 14, Lord's Day 14 from the Heidelberg Catechism, can be found on page 24 in your book of confessions. Uh, we've been working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism and you'll know the Heidelberg Catechism and this portion of how we're set free from our sin and misery, it deals with the grace of God that, that saves us from our sins. Uh, is going through the Apostles' Creed. And we've looked at the, the identity of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and now we're going to consider his work, and his work begins with his humiliation. And that's what we consider in his incarnation. So Lord's Day 14 is dealing with his incarnation, and it asks two questions with regard to what we confess. 
about his incarnation. And, and it asks, first of all, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? And it answers that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a truly human nature, so that he might become David's true descendant, in all things like us his brothers, except for sin. Then it asks this question, how does the holy conception and birth of Jesus benefit you? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin, mine, since I was conceived. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word as we consider it uh, this afternoon. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful that it endures. We ask now for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts, to again appreciate the wonder of what Jesus has done as our mediator and as our Savior, to rejoice in the significance of the incarnation for our walk of faith, our walk of godliness. So guide us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon uh, I've entitled the, the sermon, The Divine Dilemma. It's not a title that's original with me. It comes actually from the writings of a man named Athanasius. Athanasius lived around the time of the Council of Nicaea. And he was a warrior for the faith. He was a warrior for the truth. Uh, sometimes he was referred to as Athanasius Contramundum, which means Athanasius against the world. It's as though the whole world uh, stood against him in his fight for the truth. And one of those truths that he fought for was the character of the Incarnation. That God is truly man and truly God. And he wrote on the Incarnation of Jesus Christ, and one of the titles of the chapters is, uh, in which he wrote on the Incarnation of Jesus Christ is The Divine Dilemma. That's where the title for this afternoon's message comes from. The Divine Dilemma. It's a dilemma with God and particularly for us. And I want to be careful there because the, the dilemma isn't with God. God knew from eternity uh, what his plan of redemption was. But it is a dilemma for us. A dilemma is a puzzle. It's something that's hard to figure out. Sometimes it looks like there is no solution, and so we struggle with it. And, and as we consider that, we need to recognize that, that God knew from all eternity. His, his knowledge was infinite, but ours isn't like that. We grow and we develop progressively. Our, our thinking changes through time as we mature. So in order to read, we have to learn the alphabet. So prior to reading, you learn the sounds of, of the letters, and you learn the sounds of the words, and then you understand the meaning of the words. And, and I remember the, the story of Helen Keller, that, that she was born blind and deaf, and her teacher needed to instruct her how to figure things out. And her teacher knew that she had success when Helen Keller could, could touch water, and then she could sign what it was, that it was actually water, that, that there was this conception between the, the idea and the word that, that twigged with Helen Keller and her teacher knew that she was making uh, progress. 
And this afternoon, we're looking at, at one of those difficulties. And, and how do we work out the significance of the incarnation? And, and this is a challenge for us because, because we need to understand that, that for us, there's, there's a bit of a, a, a dilemma. And the dilemma would be cast today, how can a holy God take sin seriously and be reconciled to sinful humanity? Is God so holy and so, so pure that he must condemn all sin? Well, what hope is there then for sinful man? Now, now we might not talk about it that way today, maybe today. How is it possible? How is it possible for so much evil to exist in the world if God is all-powerful and all-loving? Why is there evil? It's this, this perpetual problem that man has faced. And this is the sort of dilemma that, that Athanasius writes about. And he says, to answer this dilemma, to, to solve this puzzle, to, to gain insight into this riddle, we need to consider the Incarnation. The coming of Jesus Christ is the only solution to understand how a holy God, a just God, who does take sin seriously, is able to deal with sinners in a right and a true and a just way, but also in a, in a powerful way and in a loving way. A loving way. You see, the danger is if we, we don't regard this as a dilemma, if we, we minimize the, the struggle to balance off the holiness, the, the danger is that we begin to, to make God after our image. I don't remember who it was, but it said, someone has said, ever since the fall, when, or in creation, God made man in his image, and ever since the fall, man has been making God in his image. And we say, well, it shouldn't really be a problem for God. He should just accept us. But that's not the case. God is so loving that he won't care about our sin. That's not the case. We don't understand God's word. But then if, if God is so holy that he can't deal with sinners, what hope do we have? And that's the dilemma that, that the incarnation helps us to recognize. And this isn't a solution that man has invented, not Athanasius, not Calvin, not anyone else. It's a solution uh, that God's word gives us. It's a solution that is confessed by the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're dealing with in, uh, in the, the truth that we confess that, that Jesus Christ, uh, God's only begotten Son, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. I'd like us to consider two things. First of all, the meaning of the incarnation, and secondly, the majesty of the incarnation. So what does it mean that Jesus was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Simply stated, the incarnation means the enfleshment of God. That God and man are wonderfully united in one person, Jesus Christ. It's so easy to say, isn't it? But this isn't simple or easy to receive. It has been and continues to be one of the battlegrounds for truth. 
You can hear this already in the New Testament with the Jews. They couldn't fathom that, that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, whom we know could claim to be God without blasphemy. How is that possible? Remember when Jesus heals the paralytic and the, the Pharisees and the scribes are standing there and the paralytic is lowered down from the roof and Jesus says to this paralytic, no, your sins are forgiven and, and their mental response, they don't express it, but no one forgives sins but God. They couldn't understand. They couldn't fathom that this one right in front of them, this man in front of them, had the divine ability to forgive sins sins. Is he man? Because he's flesh and blood. Or is he God? A divine dilemma. John says this in 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. So we know that this is a truth that's going to be fought against. This is a, a, a truth that, that is uh, going to be uh, attacked and even today it's attacked in that question of how can a good and loving God be all powerful and still deal with center, sinners the church has used four adjectives four ways to identify the, the relationship between God and man in the incarnation that there's a divine nature and the human nature. And both are there in one person and they're unmixed. They're unchanged. So they, there's not a blending like cold and warm water. They're not mixed together. They're not changed. The divine doesn't become human and the human doesn't become divine. Uh, they retain their original properties. They're unmixed. They're unchanged. They're without separation. Sometimes we read through scripture and we think, well, is Jesus talking in his human nature here or is he talking in his divine nature? There is no separation. In his human and divine nature, he speaks together as the one, uh, Jesus Christ, and they're without division. We can't divide them. He's true God, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, power, wisdom, holiness, goodness, and truth. That's his character. And he's true man, flesh and blood from Mary, David's true descendant with a true, reasonable soul like you and I have, except without sin. Tremendous reality that, that God shows us in, in the way that he's dealing with sinners. It, it comes up in Romans 8 as, as we're uh, reflecting on this passage this afternoon. Romans 8 reminds us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can this be for sinners? And here's the reason why. It's found in the incarnation. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. See, with our flesh... We can't obey God. And God has done it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin. God actually condemned sin. He maintains his holiness and his right standing and his justice and his judgment and he condemns sin in the flesh by sending his son in that likeness. Jesus shared in our humanity. He had a human nature like us. And that is how God resolved this 
dilemma. That's the meaning of the incarnation. God and man. 100% God, 100% man, united in one person. And what does this call us to? Worship. The majesty, secondly, the majesty of the incarnation. As we wrestle with this, we need to recognize the, the, the certainty from God's word, the dilemma that God and man, because of man's sin, are not allowed to meet. They don't belong together. They are irreconcilable. It's like water and oil. You can put them together in a jar. You can shake the jar. You can stir the jar. But that water and that oil, it just won't mix. So it is with a holy God and a guilty sinner. And this is the dilemma that the incarnation resolves. And here is the benefit of the incarnation that God and man in Christ are wonderfully reconciled and held together in perfect harmony and in perfect unity in the one person. And we're tempted to say, oh yes, but they don't belong. And let us acknowledge that is for sure. But God's word says, this is the character of Jesus as our mediator. With his innocence and perfect holiness, he is able and he was called and appointed by God to remove from God's sight. He covers and he clothes our sinful flesh with the reality of his perfect humanity and he removes from God's sight my sin, mine, since I was conceived. This is the blessing of his being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, that this mission is something that he was called to and equipped for by the presence of the Holy Spirit, that he wasn't generated naturally, but supernaturally, so that he could be the perfect mediator, the perfect go-between, the perfect one who can hold together those which are unmixable. And he can hold them together harmoniously in his one person as Jesus Christ. God and man in harmony, without mixture, without change, without separation, without division. Something only God could accomplish. That's his majesty. Do you know Jesus Christ in that way? Does that cause your heart to sing that God, by sending his own son, not just with a human nature, but in the very likeness of sinful flesh, with your human nature. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, to bear the penalty of God's wrath for sin upon the cross, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? Verse 4 of Romans 8, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk now, like Jesus walked, not according to the sinful flesh, but according to the Spirit. How does this meaning and majesty apply to us? It brings us joy. Joy in the incarnation. Joy in the blessed arrival of Jesus Christ. Joy in his work of reconciliation, which is going to include going to death upon the cross. 
The majesty of this incarnation is, is reflected in God's people when they worship, when they confess this glorious truth that God's dealing with sin wasn't some magical response that he just snapped his fingers and all of a sudden there it goes. It wasn't mechanical in the sense that Jesus was just doing his duty and trudging through life because this was the burden he needed to bear. But his work was performed with joy and delight in serving the Lord and in reconciling offending sinners with a holy God. Everything he did was for the reconciliation, for the holding together in perfect harmony, sinful flesh with a holy God, without mixture, without change, without separation, without division, so that we can be assured of our unity with God as we have been created. Everything he did was for that reconciliation, for the harmonious existence of God and man. What effect does this have? Aren't you struck by what Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, 3, verse 14? Maybe what I've said, I, I hope, is nothing new. You say, yeah, Pastor Klosterman, this is what we believe with regard to the incarnation. Yeah, that's true. That's to be certain. May there never be anything new said about the Incarnation. But notice the implication. It comes in the Heidelberg Catechism. What benefit does it give to you to know the holy conception and birth of Jesus Christ? Paul talks about it this way. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery, the mystery of godliness. Do you ever wonder why he picks that word godliness? I can understand God-likeness. I can understand deity. I can understand glory. But godliness, godliness, the mystery of godliness, the mystery of your walk in life, the mystery of how you relate to God, how you live with God, how you worship God in all that you do, how you honor Him, how you bring glory, how you fulfill your chief purpose in life, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Great is the mystery of godliness because the world could never conceive this. We could never come up with it. But God has revealed this. What is that mystery? He was manifested in the flesh. Is your life a puzzle to you? Do you struggle to relate to a holy God who seems distant and abstract? Go to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Consider what the significance and the majesty of that was. What is the mystery of godliness? This is what God reveals. He, that is Jesus Christ, God, the very person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, He was manifested in the flesh. He took to Himself a human nature. That's what Paul is unpacking in Romans 8. Why is there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Because the Son came. He took to Himself. He was sent by the Father in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that we would no longer have to walk in the flesh. We can walk in the Spirit. In fact, to set your mind on the flesh is death. But to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace.
because we follow the reconciliation wrought by the incarnation that now you, sinner, can live in harmony, in fellowship, in communion, and for worship with a holy God. Not by perpetuating sinfulness, but by showing the presence of Jesus Christ in your heart and in your life. And that's the mystery that flows from the meaning and the majesty of the incarnation, the mystery of godliness. May God help us to show Christ's accomplishment, Christ's work, Christ's benefit for sinners who struggle from conception onward to live with God. Amen.